I want to move on from that, but thank you to everyone who has listened to the book discussion so far on Zodiac Killer Just the Facts, and the next part of that talking about the Lake Berryessa stabbing will come out on Friday for the Anything Goes segment. And just a couple quick Zodiac points real fast. Because the Zodiac Killer suspect McDuff has been mentioned in the news a lot, I would like to just share some of the comments that I read off in yesterday's bonus AMA talking about the Zodiac Killer. McDuff is a suspect that was identified by Michael Morford after the Blue Rock Springs shooting on July 4th of 1969, which saw the murder of Darlene Farron. A call was made from a payphone, and Mike Morford located the payphone, of course, which is um, widely available. That's not like the big secret. But he looked at all of the houses in the surrounding area, and he found the Zodiac suspect, McDuff. And from that point, he began to learn more about McDuff's background. That is just, um, well, it's his middle name. I'm not even saying his full name on the air because he Morphos, um had the suggestion to take down his threads on this Zodiac suspect, McDuff. But anyway, some other people who have weighed in on the subject. Tom Voigt says, McDuff is a nothing burger with fries. Tyler Grover wrote in saying that if Michael Morford is so convinced that the Zodiac killer was 5 feet 8 inches tall, why did he talk about Ross Sullivan so highly in the past when Ross Sullivan is 6 foot 2? Now, that's not exactly a comment about McDuff. That's more about um, the observations made by Morph, as well as um, we have a comment from Drew Beeson who says, McDuff is a McDud. That one's pretty good. But another thing that Drew shared that I said yesterday was that Morph better do something than just say McDuff had the had a code book in his possession. Countless Zodiac suspects have either had a code book in their possession or they had the knowledge and the ability to learn about coding, whether it's in the military or they were fascinated with symbology and they learned about symbols. I mean, numerous reasons. I mean, half of the suspects out there have had education in coding. And to say something that is in favor of McDuff being the Zodiac Killer, Richard Grinnell shared the, this with me on Facebook. And this is about the um, time frame involving the Blue Rock Springs shooting, because I actually asked the question, if this guy is so smart, being the Zodiac Killer, a person of above-average intelligence, high IQ and all that, why would he use the payphone in his own neighborhood? I mean, even when I was growing up in the 90s, payphones were everywhere because we didn't have cell phones. Or, I mean, maybe Zach Morris did on Saved by the Bell, but certainly not the average Joe. So payphones were everywhere. You could use any payphone. Why would you use the one in your own neighborhood that would connect you to anything to do with the Zodiac Killer crimes if you didn't have to? I mean, why don't you use the payphone like in someone else's neighborhood? And I got a very interesting response from Richard Grinnell when he said that perhaps it was because at the Blue Rock Springs shooting, there are two shots that were fired that suggested that the Zodiac Killer leaned over into the car, shooting Mike Majot specifically, but of course Darlene Farron would have already been shot. The Zodiac leaned over to deliver two final shots to Mike Majot. That most likely would have meant that he had blood transfer on his shirt. Blood spatter would have been on his shirt, maybe even on his pants. So he could have gone home, changed his clothes, and then gone to the nearest payphone to make the call. And that's how you would have um, a solid 40 minutes explained from the time of the shooting to the time that the call has been made. 
I mean, so that's a very insightful statement from Richard Grinnell. Okay, now, moving on to our next subject, but I would first like to remind you guys that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1, formerly known as Launchpad DM, and there's a link to that in the description box. This channel relies on your support, and the best way to support the channel is just by listening to some more content. Free downloads are a great way of doing that. And you can also use YouTube Premium, although you do have to pay for that one if you want to download the videos. I have YouTube Premium. I use it all the time. You get the bonus features as well as special YouTube content. Take Black Box Online Radio on the go anywhere and anyhow. And another way you can support the channel is by visiting the Teespring page. There's some merchandise there. Remember, being weird is not a crime. But going on to the next subject... We have a comment from Tammy Lincoln that came in on an episode about Maura Murray, and in fact it was called Maura Murray Butch Atwood Theory. Maura Murray disappeared February 9th, 2004 from Haverhill, New Hampshire, after allegedly crashing her car into a snowbank. The last person to have seen Maura Murray alive was Butch Atwood, who was a school bus driver. And in the past, I never thought that Butch Atwood was a suspect. Instead, I thought that he was just a person who offered to help somebody who was stuck on the side of the road and then drove back to his home. But Butch Atwood has since passed away. I mean, Butch Atwood did actually take a lie detector test about any type of involvement with the Moore Murray case, and he failed that lie detector test. And I'll talk a lot about lie detectors later on in the episode, but I just wanted to share that because um, that's just a piece of the journey. However, Butch Atwood's widow is still alive, and her name is Barbara. I mean, I think she is um, using a different last name now, but her uh, name was Barbara Atwood at the time. And Tammy Lincoln says, It could also be the reason why Barbara Atwood said, I have no idea where Maura Murray was when she asked for location of Maura. It was probably because she genuinely had no idea. She wasn't outside and down the street. She was in her own home with her husband's mother. She did not utter those words to be creepy because it was a habit in her phraseology. It just is what it is. I will give you credit for looking for the right answer and what makes the most sense as most intelligent people tend to overcomplicate things when seeking a logical answer to a question. You see it often on Jeopardy. Unintelligent people do not have the capacity to do so, and kudos to you for not mentioning a certain wannabe author who is the biggest scuzz crack online. I fucking hate that moron. Well, I know exactly who she's talking about, and yes, there is a guy who wrote a book about the Maura Murray case, and we don't say his name on this channel. I will tell you the name of the book. It's called True Crime Addict. I was forced to break that rule once, however. Um, his name shall be nameless for the time being. When Butch Atwood's wife, Barbara, was on the phone after Moore Murray had allegedly crashed her car, they asked the, the dispatcher asked her, well, where's the girl now? And then Barbara Atwood said, I have no idea where she is. And my response was, well, my response was twofold. The first point is, Lance and Tim, who host the Missing Moore Murray podcast, said, that's so weird. Like, why did she say that? And I just had the creepy chills come over me when I heard that um, that was Barbara Atwood's response. I mean, most people would probably say, well, my husband last saw her by her car down the road, down the street, something to that effect. I, I think Tammy Lincoln might be onto something by saying, 
Um, it's just that was the honest truth. She did not know where Maura Murray was, so she said, I have no idea where she was. If you go back and listen to that episode, though, um, Maura Murray, Butch Atwood theory, I talk about how Barbara Atwood was later on interviewed, and she frequently used that phrase, though, in the interview. I believe it's by Jason Hubert on his channel. And she's saying, I have no idea. She uses it regularly in her speech. So my simple response was, she um, was just uh, talking normally. There's no ulterior motive. There's no agenda. A lot of people are looking at Butch Atwood as a suspect in the disappearance of Maura Murray because he was the last person to have seen her alive. Many times the last person to have seen somebody alive, or the, last per or the person to find the body even in a murder case, they tend to be very high on the suspect list. It doesn't always mean that they are guilty, but people often suspect their involvement, and many times it turns out the person to find the body or the last person to see them alive actually can be the guilty party. Butch Atwood gets implicated in the Moore Murray case in somewhat of a twofold way. Some people think that he murdered Moore Murray. I absolutely do not believe that, being very clear about that. Um, I mean, I suppose that anything is possible, but I don't see how. I mean, especially not based on just the um, simple nature of the way that the storyline is playing out. Instead, the second way that people think that Butch Atwood could be involved in Moore's disappearance is it appears that Moore Murray's car, which was a black Saturn, had damage to it. And some people think that that damage is inconsistent from crashing into a snowbank. It is also 100% inconsistent with crashing into um, a tree because it looks like the hood has been pressed up in somewhat of a scrunched fashion, for lack of a better term. If she had hit a tree, there would have been a type of half-moon, half-circle shape in the bumper that is not present. Maura Murray almost certainly did not hit a tree, and if you've followed the Moore Murray case, maybe you've encountered the researcher John Smith once, who got into somewhat of a shouting match with an eyewitness who allegedly heard Moore Murray's crash, and he said the car accelerated when it hit the tree, and John Smith's simple response was, the accident reconstructionists have proved it, that car did not hit a tree. Well, then what happened to Moore Murray, and if it didn't, if she didn't get the damage on to her car from the snowbank, or the tree, well, what could have done it? Guy Parody, a researcher who has followed the case, suggested that Moore Murray's vehicle must have gone under a larger vehicle, that either she was driving at a very low speed, or in, a, in Guy's exact words, a larger vehicle, say perhaps a school bus, was backing up and it tapped Moore's bumper and it pushed her hood up in that type of scrunched arch-like position. So, were Moore Murray and Butch Atwood involved in some type of very light collision, and then Butch Atwood called a police officer that he knew named Cecil Smith, and then later on in that evening, somebody did something to Mora that ended her life. Like, they were trying to resolve an accident dispute, and then they left Mora's car on the side of the road, and they fabricated the story, and that was the end of that. Um, it's somewhat of a far-fetched theory, only in the sense that it requires a lot of assumptions, that there is this type of um, inner working dynamic, like there's this type of law enforcement cover-up. 
I thought that it was the absolute wackiest theory in the world that Maura Murray was murdered by a police officer. I even did an episode about that once back in 2018 called The Wildest, Craziest Maura Murray Theory, but I accidentally deleted it. Sorry. I didn't even realize that I had done it until about ten minutes after it happened. But the point is that somebody just wrote that out on a forum. They thought that was their theory, that the first officer who went to find Morris Carr attacked her, raped her, and threw her in the trunk of his car and then drove off into the night. Well, I mean, I think you would need a lot more than speculation to say that that actually happened. But Butch Atwood did fail that lie detector test. He was the last person to have seen her alive. And furthermore, that's not implicating him as the murderer. That would mean that he called somebody and they're trying to resolve this type of accident dispute. Either Butch would drove his school bus in reverse onto Mora's car or somebody else. Or Mora slowly, slowly accidentally drove under his bus and he says, hey, I have a friend on the police force. We'll just call and we'll sort this out and then we'll get the insurance and everything is fine. And somebody did something to Mora later on. Well, where's the proof of that? Um, it might be quite similar to what Tammy Lincoln has shared in her comments, saying that some people really like to overcomplicate a thing. And um, what she says here is, what makes the most sense is most intelligent people tend to overcomplicate things when seeking a logical answer to the question. This really does happen in the true crime world. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, some people will just go on and on and on, and then they make up these participants that aren't even in the story. Well, maybe if imaginary person X did this to her, then that would have happened. But there are numerous theories in the disappearance of Maura Murray, and I would like to talk about another one here. This one is from Blackjack, who says, It is one of the greatest mysteries. The truth is that Maura Murray was relatively unstable, with too much drinking, and she didn't learn from her mistakes. She also lied a lot. After hearing most of the Missing Moore Murray podcasts, I still believe that she succumbed to the elements when she was on the run to escape the police. Um, I mean, yeah, clearly I do see that you have followed the Missing Moore Murray podcast because Lance and Tim, who host that show, wanted to lay out that framework, especially in the early episodes. They were trying to show that Mora had a history of not telling the truth, that she also had somewhat of a history with the law, I mean, trying to purchase pizza and subs with a stolen credit card number, getting kicked out of West Point for stealing $5 worth of makeup, and so on. I mean, that's not an extensive history, but it does show deviant behavior. She had also gotten into an accident previously, and they were laying the frame that Mora was in somewhat of a fragile place mentally, and that after the car crashed into the snowbank, then she... um she had simply just took off running because she may have been intoxicated and she didn't want to get her in trouble again with the law. She didn't want to get another DUI, so she just tried to spread it, put as much distance between the car and herself as possible, planning to come back for it, of course, but um, something happened to Moore along the way. Maybe she succumbed to the elements because um, she had just given up. I mean, some people think that. Many people think that. I thought that for a long time because I was heavily influenced by Lance and Tim. I first learned about the Moore Murray case from an episode of Brain Scratch on the Lord and Arts channel. And the host of that show, John Lord, and recommended Lance and Tim's podcast, The Missing Moore Murray Show. And then after 
listening to many episodes in that one, I learned about the show 107 Degrees, which is hosted by Ethan and Aaron. They explored the case in a different way, not so much looking at this that Maura is in this type of fractured mental state that she's trying to get into um, either the woods or to get away from the crash site because she doesn't want to get busted for drunk driving. Instead, they were suggesting that Maura Murray was first trying to solve the problem herself. She wanted to get to the nearest town to um, try and find somebody to assist the car. That's why she refused help from Butch with the school bus driver. But then, a hundred feet later on from the car, she um, maybe accepted a ride from somebody. And I've talked about how that could have been a woman whom she would have felt more comfortable getting into the car with. Or also what they do say about people who are predators is that... Um, they're the type of person that you would enter a car with, even though they are not uh, the safest person in the world. But they make you think that you, they are the safest person in the world. If that's the case, though, I mean, where's the proof of that? What I've always said about the Moore Murray case is the reason why I think it's so popular is because we know so much about Mora's life prior to Route 112, prior to the crash, and we know absolutely nothing that happened after Mora disappeared, and she really did vanish off the face of the earth. And if she is, um, if she did pass away in the woods, then skeletal remains, maybe finding her backpack, finding things like shoes, those could be discovered. If she were murdered by an opportunistic murderer, or just murdered by somebody who was involved with a situation that escalated, like somebody drove her to a location, some conflict ensued, and that led to Morris' death, that would be almost impossible to, um to solve, and that situation will be much more difficult. But as far as Ethan and Aaron's assessment of this, they wanted to point out that Mora may not have been drinking at the time of the accident. They found a Diet Coke bottle under the car that had some type of red liquid previously in it that had been poured out into the snow. They actually suggested that that was a makeshift way of storing red antifreeze, and Moore was not known to uh, drink Diet Coke. She actually was known to drink Cherry Coke. I mean, not that there's a law that says you have to drink only one kind, but um, as far as Mora's mental state, they wanted to point out that Mora did do things like this frequently, going off on her own for at times, um, trying to just uh, get away from people, taking the train into the city once and then not telling anybody about it. Another important point to remember is Moore Murray was a cross-country runner, and she may have um, been trying to run from the car to the nearest town. I mean, but um, Lance and Tim even pointed out that if someone is running at temperatures below 32 degrees or below zero if you're using Celsius, there's a higher chance of freezing to death. That could be one thing. Also, if she did anything about running on unfamiliar territory at night, then she may have tripped over something, and then that could have led to a broken leg, broken ankle, or um, even if she's just injured in some way, and then she gets stuck out in the cold and freezes to death. Or a recent theory that somebody shared in the comment section here on this channel was that she may have actually tripped and fallen into a river when people are in unfamiliar territory. The risk of drowning is always higher. And I've talked about this statistic before, whether it's the disappearance of Brandon Lawson or Moore Murray or any other time when someone disappears after a car accident or losing um, power to their battery or something. 
when people are in unfamiliar settings and they their car breaks down once they leave the vehicle the risk of dying is so much higher like i mean the real answer is to just stay with your vehicle so i think it could be interpreted both ways i we had a comment that came in once on an episode and someone was asking about mora's car about like why the car wouldn't start and i don't know if i have the exact answer to that but it may have been something as simple as the car was operational because her father fred murray was able to operate the vehicle once it had been moved to a garage i mean the car was towed and it still had the rag in the tailpipe i haven't talked about that one yet the rag in the tailpipe came from moore's emergency kit from the car and um i've uh, had some disagreements with people in the comments section about this when there's the theory that the reason why there's this rag that has been in the tailpipe is because Moore's car was smoking. Like, when she would put the car into park, smoke would come out of the exhaust pipe, and then um, that would be uh, one way to not draw attention to the car. People would see a smoking car on the side of the road. Okay. But um, some of people have also pointed out was Moore trying to attempt suicide or... Was she trying to distract people from drunk driving? Like, uh, for, for the longest time, that's what I thought it was. That's what I thought the rag in the tailpipe was. She was just trying to do something to um, distract the authorities or anybody who would find the car from drunk driving. I absolutely, though, reject the theory that Mora was running away to Canada. I absolutely reject the theory that she was murdered by somebody close to her and the comment that blackjack put in was on the episode about that one guy whose name we don't say on the channel anymore but uh, somebody asked me a direct question about why don't you like he who must not be named and um, i responded in an episode back when i was doing the daily 20 minute segment so there's this theory out there that mora got to a cabin somewhere in new hampshire and that her parents started looking for her, or, I mean, her family started looking for her, her boyfriend, Billy, everyone was just looking for more Murray, and there, she's even making the news in the media, and they actually found her, and she was staying in a cabin just doing a college student getaway, impromptu. She disappeared, and they're like, you've caused all this trouble, and then there was some type of argument that ensued, and somebody did something that ended the life of more murray i think that's just true crime blabbing that's when we use that expression um the person who came up with that theory is also the guy who said that for the longest time he thought more murray was living in canada and that she started a new life he's just making crap up so he can sell books and get attention for himself if i can be frank okay we have a comment that came in on the episode sons of sam from brandon shin going in to another subject and this one says i'm pretty sure watching and listening to all of your videos has got me on a police watch list damn it lol hey brandon thank you for listening all the same and this is actually sons of sam manson family connection talking about the netflix documentary and the ultimate evil by maury terry and if anyone wants to uh check that out i invite you to listen i am so surprised though about just how ridiculous the youtube censors are and in the past i never was a conspiracy theorist 
I became a conspiracy theorist because of looking into stuff, and you often find that conspiracy theories are not only containing a grain of truth. You ever heard that expression? A conspiracy theory could contain a grain of truth. No, many conspiracy theories are actually true. It's just that they are um, really overinflated and they exaggerate the language, and sometimes they have blatant misrepresentations. But the YouTube censors here are so strict that they're just deleting anything involving um, certain subjects, which I guess I probably shouldn't talk about so they don't take the episode down, especially when we were doing the JonBenet Ramsey episodes. A lot of comments were deleted, or on the Manson family, or when you talk about this type of nationwide underground cult movement, the shadow network of cult-like activity, or high-level politicians who could be involved with occult practices and certain types of uh, illegal behaviors. Have you ever heard that rumor once that if you get elected to Congress, you have to witness a rape or a murder or something heinous and illegal so that now they have your involvement in something that now you've been implicated in a crime. That's an extreme, outrageous accusation. But one thing that is no longer an outrageous accusation is people were brought to Epstein's Island, Little St. James, in the Virgin Islands, and they were involved with weird sex acts, sometimes with minors, and now they have blackmail on the person. So that is something that may have been some far-out extreme conspiracy, but it, now it seems like it's mostly true. I mean, there's an enormous amount of corroborating evidence that Epstein is, I mean, the, kind of the centerpiece of the um, global elite sex nonsensical ring and such. Terrible, terrible person. I don't mean to make light of it, and I hope it didn't come across the wrong way. But as far as being on a police watch list... Uh, censorship is out of control. People are definitely observing things. And as I've noticed that so many comments get auto-deleted, especially some that are even benign. You have to wonder, are certain people afraid of things? Are certain people afraid of the truth getting out? Like when people start talking about the CIA connections to murders and, um, like, people were saying things about Dolly Day in the uh, comment threads recently about how the CIA could be committing murders and then blaming it on the occult or blaming it on some other major political figure. But in short, they're just using this as either thrill kills or opportunistic ways of taking out political players, and as well as using the media coverage to distort these actions. I mean, whether it's the Zodiac Killer, Charles Manson, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Slings, using the media coverage to control how people think. Now, you guys know I follow the Stones Unturned podcast, which is hosted by Thomas Henry Horan, and he did an episode recently that talked about how, um, I guess it was more on the history of how the global elites function. And one thing was that they can gain power by trying to get us addicted to substances. And of course, that's going to include things like the opium trade and the global war on drugs, which is just a facade for um, support the drug trade in one way and supports mass incarceration in another way. But even getting people addicted to things like alcohol, for example, and better yet, tea and coffee, 
you're putting poison in your body, and I mean, poison meaning heroin and alcohol, I wouldn't really call coffee and tea poison, but you're putting these types of poison in your body, you get addicted to it, and now you can't get out. But when it comes to um, the alcohol angle, it is um, something that I did notice, though, that years ago, I even wrote a short article about this once, I was watching CNN, something I don't do anymore, and every segment they did, whether it was the show, the commercials, there were like 15 different ways that they were showing alcohol. Everybody was drinking for like the solid hour. Like I said, the commercials, the show, the guests that are on the show. And I was like, wow, like this is just kind of weird. Why are they showing like this so consistently? Is this some type of product placement advertising? And it could very well be that um, it is just that, that when people are... Um, seeing lots of advertising for addictive substances, and that uh, does include tea and coffee. Caffeine is a very addictive substance. It's not a poison, though, being clear about that. That is there something actually going on with that, that they're trying to get people hooked on these things because it's controlling. It's something that they can be in control of. A family member once recently asked me, why do we drink the morning coffee? And I was like, well, it gives you energy and helps you wake up. Yeah, but... When did that start? For a long time, I bet people probably didn't need the morning coffee. And we only drink the morning coffee because we're now hooked on the caffeine. I was like, yeah, maybe that's true. Well, the answer is, it could have been centuries of product placement advertising trying to get people to buy tea, to buy coffee, as well as um, trying to get people hooked on stronger things, alcohol, tobacco, as well as maybe even hard drugs, like the opium trade is very, very prevalent throughout British history. Maybe you remember the opium wars. And um, I read a book once, and I don't know if it's the most credible book in the world. It came from the Lyndon LaRouche movement, talking about how at one point, 10% of Hong Kong was hooked on heroin. They didn't provide a source for that. I think I remember saying that here on BBOR, but I think you can get the idea. If you get people hooked on substances, then they're dependent upon them, and they're in this type of uh, debilitated state, which would be very easy for the global elites to control. Okay, though, so, one final point on that is, I frequently mention the name Webster Tarpley from time to time. He is the historian and political commentator behind World Crisis Radio, and he has numerous publications out there. He was the person who shared this info with me. I don't know him personally, just following his stuff that many of the famous writers and thinkers from the British Empire were agents of the East India Company, particularly Malthus, Bentham, James Mill, and John Stuart Mill, and their writings were actually inspired by the Italian Giovanni Gianmaria Ortes, who was, um, I guess you would say an emissary of the um, Venetian oligarchs, for lack of a better term. Someone who is being used to create a way of thinking that is beneficial to the global elites. And then his works were, what Tarpley says, were plagiarized by Malthus Bentham and James Mill. I absolutely do not think John Stuart Mill plagiarized Giovanni Chamaria Ortes from looking into the stuff myself. Instead, I think he expanded upon the writings that were already present because he's the son of James Mill. He took his father's work and then went a step further, but that's just my take on the subject. Then Tarpley will also say some things like John Locke was 
doing the same thing with the writings of Paulo Sarpi from Venice. In short, that um, the British Empire is actually the Empire of Venice, and that the Venetians move north and gain control of the financial connections that are behind the British Empire, and the Empire of Venice has never fallen. Rome was an empire of territory, Venice was an empire of economic and financial control. So this is something that has been widely discussed, coming from a wide variety of backgrounds, that there is this type of um, ways of controlling humanity and putting human beings in a state in which they can be controlled. And the stuff that Ortes would get into, as I said, you know, just as someone who has casually read up on the stuff, he was very fascinated with turning human beings into numbers, or thinking that there can be like an equation for everything, there can be a type of um, quantifying entity for everything. The human body is just a ball and mash of bone, tendon, loin, and ligament, and that it's just, that's what we are, We're, they're just objects, and objects can be quantified, you can give a number to them, and you'll see something very similar in the 20th century with a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who worked for Henry Ford, and it's the same thing, it's using statistics to try and monitor how people move, like you have to get production to go faster, you have to make people work faster, how do you make people work faster? The problem with that is when you try and just use people as statistics in an equation, it's dehumanizing and it creates um, a very destructive element for humanity. I mean, you're like, okay, well, why don't you work 24-hour shifts uh, seven days a week and then you die? I mean, people are just going to do things to gain control of the situation, maximize profits, and destroy other people for money and power, and there will be sexual abuse along the way because people do that too when they can get away with it. And to continue onward with discussions about the global elites in an absolutely different direction, I would like to go to some of the comments that you guys have left about the Kennedy assassination. This was from the episode, Kennedy Assassination, Did the Soviets Kill JFK? And if you could summarize that episode into one sentence, it would be that the single shooter and the JFK theories has not been debunked. Many people insist that John F. Kennedy was shot by a single shooter, that someone named Oswald was practicing for a year, and he became the person who took out JFK. There are people out there that think that it was Oswald. There are people out there that insist that it was impossible that Lee Harvey Oswald could have fired all those rounds that actually killed JFK. Well, let's look at the comments that you guys have left. C.S. Lewis writes, No American-owned medias kill him. Media troops are troops in disguise. I'm not exactly sure how you would respond to that, but I mean, I definitely would expect that the media is state-controlled. The media is on the side of the global elites because they're corporations. In, in the days when I did watch CNN, you would see guys like Wolf Blitzer saying, Hey, make no mistake about this. This is a business. You would see guys like Anderson Cooper saying, Hey, this is a business. They say it very clearly. What does a business want to do? Maximize profits. How do you maximize profits? Well, getting people hooked on addictive substances. And we didn't even talk about antidepressants. That is perhaps the more widely established one. People are going to watch these depressing news stories about people being murdered. Oh, look, a commercial for Zoloft. Joy Rapture. And uh, Colonel Reb says, You ever listen to the Lone Gunman podcast, Ned? No, I haven't, but thanks for the recommendation. I could check that out. 
The next comment is from Amanda Francis, who says, Have you heard of the mortal error hypothesis? It suggests that a Secret Service agent in the follow-up car stood to return fire at the book depository. The car suddenly sped up. He stumbled, and a bullet from his rifle hits Kennedy in the head. The subsequent cover-up was to avoid admitting the folly. It doesn't explain Oswald's actions, but gives theories as to why nothing makes sense in this case. Uh, to answer your question, no, I had no, I've never heard of that before. I think that that one, um, I would need a lot more convincing on that one. Another theory, though, that I was more familiar with, though, was that it was actually the driver of JFK's car. Uh, what was his name? William Greer. This is actually the Bill Cooper theory that he was the second shooter, that he pulled out a handgun real fast and shot Kennedy in the head. But absolutely, uh, that is false. Even some guy like me, who is not an expert on the Kennedy assassination, can almost certainly say that that one is false. What Cooper thought was a gun was actually a reflection. That It's just um, a reflection of light that can be seen in the car, but if you show it like in a microsecond, it looks like it's a handgun. I did try to uh, investigate that one myself, but as far as this mortal error hypothesis, I'm not going to lie to you, Amanda Francis. I'm tempted to put that one in the same category as it was JFK's driver, Instead, as far as mortal errors go, the former CIA operative, John Stockwell, said very clearly, any driver should have immediately sped up and driven straight out of there. The Secret Service is trained in this. People know that they're what they're supposed to do. They violated all of the protocols on the uh, during the Kennedy assassination. Uh, Wacky Wayfarer has something to say about the... Um, the uh, uh, mortal error hypothesis. It is a laughable theory unless they actually were worse shots than a blind grandma. Uh, do you mean the babushka lady? Um, do you, are, you, are you accusing her? And then Playtime says, the CIA saturates their assassinations with red herrings and chaos. They set up Oswald as a patsy. They sent several moles to Russia. This one Oswald scored by marrying a high-ranking daughter. Only the CIA could have pulled off many facets of the big event. E. Howard Hunt, another CIA man, confessed to the assassination. Hunt called the big event. Hunt's son, Hunt's son I hope that sounded clear, wrote The Bond of Secrecy, where he lays out his father's confession. Hey, playtime, thank you for that. I would love to read that one. That is definitely going on my list um, to check out, because I'm somebody who um, has never been completely pulled into the... Kennedy assassination, but that guy, Webster Tarpley, that I was just talking about, was saying, you can't learn about one conspiracy and not learn about another. Like, you can't learn about 9-11 truth and say you're not going to learn about the Kennedy assassination. And at the time, I was learning about 9-11 truth, but I was like, wait a second, I've never really read up on the Kennedy assassination. And then you have one of those facepalm moments, gosh darn it. But when it comes to... um the Kennedy assassination. Um, I've had somewhat of a window into it through the eyes of Bill Cooper, as I said, as well as Mae Brussel and uh, John Stockwell as well. Planet X Filmworks writes, it was the CIA-FBI conjunction. A man who looks like George Sr. was in Dallas that day, although the pic is very low resolution. JFK was filmed by the JFK film by Stone breaks it down well. There is also a good breakdown on YouTube. They found the FBI agent shooter's prints in the book depository. Oswald was in the break room. I don't think he took the shot, but he may have handled the rifle at some point. Uh, that would explain a lot of things. I mean, Planet X Filmworks, I mean, 
that really sounds like you could be um connecting a lot of the dots. Albert Forrell writes, It was Zod. Connect the dots. No, no way. If it had been Zod, Superman would have saved the day. I caught that reference. And then on to the next comment here. Um, this is another one from C.S. Lewis. Melvin Belli and Ruby Case and Zodiac Killer Case. Ozer Oswald worked for a smuggler's operation. He smuggled the girl out of Russia as his wife. Jim Garrison's film investigated the smuggling operation. They were all gay men. Lee Harvey Oswald was a rabbit hole for smugglers. The Song of the South meets Alice in Wonderland beginning. Due to the Kennedys' connection to RKO Productions, Oswald was not happy in the South, leaves to Russia, meets a colonel's daughter from behind the Iron Curtain. A fake marriage gets the girl out of Russia and into the USA safe house. Ruth Payne leaves Oswald and is mistaken for Michael Payne. Michael Payne is mistaken for Oswald. Marina marries a porter man, who actually looks like Sean Connery as James Bond. Now it began when JFK met Judy Garland, whom he dated. Then Judy helped JFK win the election, besting Nixon. Media's troops manipulating an election. Media's troops shot Lincoln, too. The O's lead to Dallas. The Oz leads to Dallas. The AZ leads to Dallas. The Judy Garland trail leads to Dallas. All right. Firstly, t please take a chill pill and then we can talk. I mean, I'm seeing things all over the map. Where do we begin with this one here? Um, The Judy Garland connection is one that I'm not super familiar with because there was a certain person named Marilyn Monroe who had a uh, much uh, bigger affair with John F. Kennedy. But some people think that um, the Kennedy assassination was planned well in advance. And the reason why is because... As um, much as John Stockwell was talking about, Kennedy's car would have had to have come to a complete stop, and it was so obviously um, done at an opportune time, where all the pieces are lining up in a way that appears to be too convenient. I should have, shouldn't have said obvious. And the reason why I introduced this episode by saying that the single-shooter theory has not been debunked is because people, like, still believe it. If you want to put forward a multiple shooter theory in the Kennedy assassination, I can find you one expert that is going to say it was a single shooter. For every person you find that says there were two shooters or three shooters in the Kennedy assassination, I can find one expert for you that's going to say there was a single shooter. But um, some people actually pointed out um, in the... well. I, it was a video that was sent to me that was the inspiration for that episode on the Kennedy assassination, did the Soviets kill JFK, that the person whom I was talking about, James Woolsey, made a comment about how one of Oswald's shots almost got JFK, and I thought he was referring to the bullet that would have struck the uh, sidewalk or the pavement and caused a shard of that to pop up and strike somebody in the leg. There's that bullet that went off. I thought that's what he was talking about. Someone else was saying, no, he's openly admitting that the uh, shots fired by Oswald didn't hit. There's either a grassy null shooter or something like this, the mortal error hypothesis. Some way, somehow, it's not a reflection, and it was JFK's driver that shot him. But I think that um, the Judy Garland angle is a little bit... I just don't really know what to say about that. I will look into that and hopefully respond properly in the future. But I do appreciate the comment all the same. Steph at Studio Steph says, I believe the cars had passed 
and were moving away from the book depository, therefore Secret Service would be shooting behind them and not in the direction of JFK's head. Oh, well, in the mortal error hypothesis that Amanda Francis laid out, this guy would have tripped, stumbled, or some type of way he lost his balance. That could have happened in a number of ways. But uh, Playtime has another one about Anton LaVey, actually. And let's hear this. Anton LaVey is, of course, from the Church of Satan, 1966. A good friend of Earl Van Best Jr., LaVey's black horse was located really close to the Presidio. Anton LaVey and Robert Vaughn played the Calliope for the silent movie theaters. YouTube program to kill, part 18 on Manson. There are many links here to the handlers and hitmen for Sinatra, making their hits look like satanic cult insanity. Frank Sinatra was mobbed up. He was the front man for Sam Giancana. Whatever he said he wanted just magically happened. For instance, Frank was married to Mia Farrow and in 1968 took the role of Rosemary and Rosemary's baby, away from Sharon Tate, who ironically was pregnant with Polanski's baby. Um, a lot of people have talked about this. I did some things about this in 2020 when, just looking at that theory, Roman Polanski is the husband of Sharon Tate. He is in... England at the time she is murdered. She's murdered by Tex Watson and Susan Atkins, the other members of the Manson family, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Well, not really allegedly. They've been convicted. Some people just have dispute over who actually did the fatal blow to Sharon Tate. And some people think that it is a type of message to Roman Polanski that he revealed too many secrets of the elite circles of the Hollywood, Holly weird side, he revealed too many heavily guarded secrets in the movie Rosemary's Baby, which I hate to give some spoilers away, but it is about hailing Satan and all that. And Polanski was known to uh, challenge um, a lot of the mm, spiritual side of things. What's that? Um, what's that other movie that he did? Repulsion. That one is a. Uh, pretty good, especially watching it for the first time. But I highly do recommend Rosemary's Baby, and uh, Polanski seems like a guy who was an absolutely terrible human being, but he did make some good movies. Very big perfectionist with all of that. So um, I was watching an interview with Susan Atkins recently from the Manson family, and there's this enormous discussion and debate going on about what really happened with the Tate-LaBianca murders. And a lot of people do not accept the conventional narrative. When she was um, asked in her most famous interview, why were these crimes committed? She simply said, well, we were instructed to go to the house and kill everybody in the house. And they were like, did Charles Manson instruct you to do that? And she said, yes. And not only that, we're supposed to hit every house on the street. And about getting revenge on the media elites, more or less, sending a message to the world, but also Charles Manson was frustrated simply because he wasn't going to be a famous rock star. I definitely tend to lean toward that one. However, a lot of people are trying to uh, convince me that it was a drug deal gone wrong. It was a prostitution deal gone wrong. It was uh, something to do with organized crime. Brian Davis, the host of the Tate LaBianca radio program, did point out something, though, about how you have the Tate La Bianca murders. All right, that's an explanation for the Sharon Tate murders, as well as Wojtek Farkowski, Abigail Folger, Stephen Parent, and J.C. Bring. 
But with the LaBianca murders, then is it possible that Charles Manson actually was present outside of the house and was having a conversation with Linda Kasabian, who was another member of the Manson family, she was supposed to be the quote-unquote lookout for the Sharon Tate murders. And then Linda Kasabian says that she wants to buy drugs. And then they're like, well, that person that we know isn't around here anymore. The person that you're thinking about isn't around anymore. And they actually go to that person's house and they see he doesn't live here anymore. Oh, wait, there's someone new in the house who has a boat in the driveway. And then they wanted to rob the LaBianca house and, um, well, for profit actually and that was some of the underlying motive but that is purely a theory that he'd seemed like he was pulling out um from the top of his head pulling off the top of his head rather but it's just something to think about that um there are additional layers to this and i would say that brian davis from the tate labianca radio program simply explores it that way saying the crime the motivation behind these crimes is profit that's a big one whereas the more conventional narrative about manson is he felt very betrayed that he didn't get to become a famous rock star slash musician and that he thought that certain people particularly terry melcher were betraying his trust and violating his privacy and um stealing his music in other words but that's all open to discussion so as far as this episode goes in conclusion there's some terrible things that happen in the world there are people that try to make money off of tragedy, and there are ways that people will find excuses for profit in any single way. I mean, that, whether you're going to talk about someone writing a book like that one guy, he who must not be named, or you're going to be looking at the global elites who are trying to get us addicted to those damn poisons known as tea and coffee. No, that's a joke. You're trying to get us addicted to those damn poisons known as heroin and alcohol. Yeah, okay, people do some evil things. Now, I would like to go back to an interview that I heard with Joseph Farrell on The Bite Show, B-Y-T-E, when he simply said that money is fine. You can have clay tablets that have value. You can have coins. You can have these things called dollar bills. And you can exchange them for goods and services. That's cool. But once it crosses international borders and you decide... How are you going to exchange this money at what rate? That is where the evil gets found. If money is not the root of all evil, no, absolutely not. It's that who gets to oversee the interactions between these currencies and finding out where the uh, world's reserve currency is going to be. Who gets to be that um, deciding figure? And that whoever controls that financial connection is going to have more power, and that becomes the um, foundation of what we know as the New World Order, and the mechanism that allows oligarchy to propagate. So, yeah, they're going to do things like get us addicted to tea and coffee. I'm going to go drink some tea right now. I love this stuff. I do it all evening long. <sighs> Counter blessings. Fight the good fight. And uh, some battles are um, better left until tomorrow. If I want to fight the New World Order, I'll give up tea and coffee and only buy Patriot coffee and tea from InfoWars. That was another joke. Anyway, I hope you guys all stay safe and 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've made it until the end, one more time, you can download it for free at Launchpad 1. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. There's also a Facebook page for the show, same name, Blackbox Online Radio. And you can get me on the DMs on Instagram, BlackboxNid88. My personal Facebook is also in the description box here. And you can share your stuff in the comments section. Maybe your comment will end up on one of these AMAs. So, see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.